Good evening and welcome once again to our Bible study series. We're continuing along in Out of Bondage into Abundance. We are still in part six of seven parts. And for those that might be new with us, the notes for all of these studies and also recordings for each and every study are available at our website. That's new-life-ministries.org. And these Bible studies you can access either by telephone, on the Internet, through MixLR, or, again, they're also recorded and saved there on our website. If you are following along on the notes, we've come to page 129, and again, we're in part six of seven parts. In this part six, we're looking at the seven nations that were already dwelling in the promised land. God had been telling the Israelites for a number of years that he wanted to take them out of bondage into this land flowing with milk and honey a rich, lush land, a land that the Lord cared for, that the Lord blessed, and the land that he had promised to Abraham and his descendants. Just one small problem. These seven nations that were already living in that promised land, they were evil, wicked, perverse nations, And God gave the Israelites the task of driving them out, dispossessing them, literally taking over their lands, their farms, their houses, and their territories. And we've been looking at these nations one by one because they're all listed by name in Deuteronomy 7 and a number of other places. And we're finding very interestingly that each nation seems to represent a class of evil that needs to be overcome by you and me in our Christian journey. We also come out of bondage, and we're traveling into the promised land, the abundant life that Jesus spoke about, and ultimately into heaven itself, where the Bible says God has a promised inheritance waiting for us. And so... There's much in the New Testament about the overcomer, the overcoming church. And I believe these seven nations represent different spiritual entities. Paul talks about them in the book of Ephesians. Powers, principalities, rulers of darkness, wickedness, spiritual wickedness in heavenly places that must be conquered We wrestle against them, and we're pulling down every stronghold, conquering and overcoming all of these different spiritual evils. And we've now come to what may be one of the most unique and interesting of all the seven nations. We started with them last week, and this nation is the Perizzites. And unlike the other seven nations... We don't know anything about where they came from. All the others, we can trace their lineage and their genealogy back to the book of Genesis. Most of the other nations were 
uh, descendants of Canaan. But this one, we have no idea where they came from. They're not related to anyone. They have no genealogy. And interestingly enough, that seems to fit right in with what this nation seems to represent. Perizzite comes from the Hebrew word perez, which means to separate or to divide. And we saw last time that literally the lifestyle of this nation seems to bear out the meaning of their name. They lived separate, apart from everyone else. We saw that they lived in unwalled villages, and they were basically loners. They didn't have any relations with any of the other nations. And I was studying this a little bit more this afternoon, and I just wrote down they were separate from others, and they also represent separators of others. So we're taking this parasite spirit to represent an independent spirit, a spirit of separation and division. And this spirit leads people, and again, we're talking about the Christian life now, this spirit leads certain Christians to become what I call lone rangers, loners. They're independent. They don't want to go along with the group. They have their own ideas. They have their own government. They're basically a law unto themselves. And that's okay. I mean, if you want to be separate, go for it. But there are deeper problems involved because ultimately those people end up causing division. And they cause a great deal of separation and harm and confusion in the body of Christ. And of course, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He wasn't about having a whole bunch of individual Christians, all like lone rangers, doing their own thing. Jesus came to build a church, a, a united body of believers, and this spirit is directly opposed to that. It wants to separate, and it wants to lead people out from the church to be separate and independent. And we saw that that trend began very early on in the Garden of Eden when Satan tempted Adam and Eve to begin to make choices and decisions independent of God. And really, this is such a serious thing that if you were to ask me to give a definition of sin, it wouldn't be lying or stealing or adultery or even idolatry or worship of false gods. The essence of sin, I think, is summarized in Isaiah 53, 6, we have all turned to our own way. We have all turned to our own way. And, my goodness, isn't that the culture we find ourselves in now? Every man for himself, every woman for herself, everybody has their own idea, 
They're going to do their own thing. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do it my way, and you can look for the highway. Well, that's sin. When we are inspired to do it our way, we're doing just what Isaiah talks about. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and what does God call it? And the Lord has laid on him, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. So the basis of sin and iniquity is independence, it's rebellion against God, it's self-will. I'm going to govern myself, I'm the captain of my own ship, I will decide what I'm going to believe and not believe, I will choose my own path in life. Alright? And we looked at a number of scriptures last week that deal with this whole subject of rebellion, of lawlessness, of independence. It's a very serious thing. And it can be a matter of life and death spiritually because the Bible is very clear. Jesus came to establish a kingdom. And we talked about this last week. The word kingdom sounds kind of nice. We have visions of thrones and marble floors and gold and pearly gates and all that. It sounds wonderful. But the word kingdom can be replaced with the word government. A kingdom means there's a king, and a king rules. A king governs his kingdom. And in the kingdom of God, God governs. And in Isaiah 9, the passage we love to sing and quote at Christmas time about the birth of the Son, he'll be wonderful counselor and all of that, it goes on to say, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Kingdom and government are things that are established by Jesus Christ. So, this spirit undermines submission to the king and to the kingdom. And we saw a parable in Luke 19 where the citizens told the king, we don't want you to reign over us. That's the essence of this spirit. We don't want God telling us what to do. We'll make our own rules. And that has pervaded our whole culture now. A lot of people don't realize it, but what the little kids are being taught in the government schools about where we came from is very important. If you believe that you evolved from a monkey and the monkey evolved from some other animal and ultimately we all just randomly came about from some goo in the ocean, then there's no God, there's no creator, and we're not answerable to anyone. So the, the lie of evolution has far-reaching consequences on people's worldview, their belief systems, and how they live. And look at how the young generation is living today. Most of them are growing up in homes that never go to church. They have no idea what the Bible says. They think that the story of God creating all things is, is equivalent to 
Santa Claus coming and delivering a bunch of presents at Christmas. They think it's just a myth and a lie, and science has settled the whole issue now. We all evolved. We have no purpose, really, for being here. Let's just eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's very sad, but that's, in a nutshell, what our culture has become. We need to bring this generation back to an understanding. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created each and every one with a purpose, with a plan, <clears throat> with a destiny, and he has a kingdom that he is inviting people to be a part of, but we must do it his way. He's the king, and he has laws, he has rules, he has ways that must be followed if we are to be a part of his kingdom. Now, we, we looked at a number of scriptures, which I'm not going to review. You can review that on your own in the notes and the recording from last week. But many scriptures in the New Testament deal with this problem of people who had an independent spirit. They despised the authority and the order of the church. They thought they knew better. And so what they ended up doing is not only leaving the body of believers, but they tried to take people with them. And they caused divisions and all kinds of confusion, even in the early church. And Paul said, it needs to be that way so that those who are truly of God can be manifested and those who have this wrong spirit can also be manifested and identified. Now, this week, we want to concentrate on how to avoid falling into this trap, how to overcome this parasite spirit. And trust me, it tries to attack all of us. It tries to whisper in our ear and say, be independent, leave the church, be separate. You don't need these people. You don't need to be a part of a church. You can sit at home and watch television on Sundays, and you'll be just as well off. How do we overcome this independent, rebellious spirit that wants us to be a lone ranger, a wandering star, and not really be joined or connected to the body of Christ? Let's go through this carefully, again, because this is such a serious matter, especially in these last days in which we find ourselves. Again, if you're following in the outline, we're on page 129, Roman numeral I, how to overcome independence, separation, and division. And number one in the list... It sounds simple, but really this is the foundation of everything else we're going to talk about tonight. Surrender to God's kingdom rule and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Sounds easy. It isn't. But it's all about surrender. First and foremost, surrendering to God. Understanding that God has a kingdom. God wants to govern my life. 
Jesus wants to be the Lord of my life, and I need to acknowledge that, surrender my will, my plans, my ambition, my future, surrender my whole life to God's kingdom, and to be able to say, Lord, you rule over me. Have your way in my life. I submit to your lordship. We begin with a very familiar verse that is often twisted, perverted, and distorted, and I want to clarify a couple of things from this well-known verse. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Probably one of the most oft-quoted verses in gospel tracts, gospel literature, little booklets that people hand out to try to witness or win people to the Lord. It's used very often by preachers. Let's look at it. Paul said, if you declare with your mouth, quoting, Jesus is Lord, end quote, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Now, unfortunately, this has often been reduced to some kind of a formula where all you have to do is stand up in front of the church, maybe raise your hand or repeat something after the preacher, and voila, it's done. You're saved. Have a nice day. Well, it is simple. We don't want to overcomplicate it. But please notice what Paul is saying. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you really believe that, that God raised Jesus from the dead. He is the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord of all things, and you're now ready to openly confess with your mouth that you're submitting to that Lordship by saying, Jesus is my Lord, then yes, you will be saved. You know, there's a teaching that you sometimes hear Accept Jesus as your Savior, and then eventually make Him your Lord. You know, accept Him as your Savior tonight. It may take a while, but in a couple of years, then, you know, hopefully you can make Him your Lord also. Paul is not teaching two separate steps here of one, letting Jesus be your Savior, and then later on, He becomes your Lord. You get saved only when he becomes your Lord. That's very clear here. If, it's a condition, if Jesus is your Lord, then you can be saved. If Jesus is not your Lord, no salvation. So this is so critical, Paul ties it right in with salvation. Making Jesus Lord of your life surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus, and even being ready to openly, publicly confess, Jesus 
is my Lord. All right? Second verse is also found in Romans. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Very familiar passages. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So, here again, we're urged to offer ourselves to God. Specifically, it says here, offer your bodies. We don't have time to look at all the verses, but in Hebrews 10 and other places, it talks about how even Christ offered his body to do the will of his Father. We don't just imagine doing the will of God in our thoughts or in our dreams or in our hearts. We do the will of God with our hands and our feet and our bodies. That's why Paul says, offer, surrender your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. What is God's will for my life? That can only be proven by me doing it, by me surrendering to God's will, offering my body to do the will of God. So, this first point, uh, a lot more we could add here, but I think just these few verses are enough for us to see, and you probably can think of many other scripture verses. The best way to overcome this independent spirit, you know, lone ranger spirit, I'm going to be off by myself doing my own thing, is to surrender to God. Say, God, have your way with my life. Steer me in the right direction. Teach me your ways. Guide me into your perfect will. Only those that do the will of God are going to receive the reward. Everything else is going to pass away, the Bible says. So it's paramount that we get this right. Surrender to God, surrender to his purpose, and allow him to rule over our thoughts, our lives, our choices, our decisions, every area of our life to invite God's kingdom rule. And of course, many of the laws and the rules and the ways of his kingdom we learn through studying his word. If we don't know the word of God, we can't possibly surrender to his rule. So we must get into God's word, find out what it is that he is saying, what are the rules of the game. You can't just go play a game, basketball or football or soccer or whatever it is, unless you know the rules of the game. Otherwise, you will foul out. 
you, you'll be thrown out of the game long before it's over because you've broken too many rules. We need to find out what God's rules are so we can surrender to him. The second point we want to look at here in how to overcome this independent spirit is also very, very important. Get joined to the body of Christ. Don't be a lone ranger. You know, I've been in ministry for over 40 years. I've seen many good people come and many good people go. And one of the things that is so sad is to see people who come with tremendous potential, talents, gifts, and so many other things, and yet they just can't seem to allow themselves to be joined to the body of Christ. And <clears throat> some of them become what I call Christian grasshoppers or church hoppers. They just hop from church to church to church. Well, I'll go to this famous church. It has, you know, five or 10,000 members. Uh, let me see how this one works out. They go there for six months or eight months. Finally, they don't like the singing or they don't like the pastor or somebody in the church turns them off. And so they leave that church, jump to another one. And they go year after year like that, just hopping from church to church to church. They never get rooted and grounded anywhere. They never grow because they're not joined anything. And I want to read a rather lengthy portion uh, from 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul elaborates on the church being the body of Christ. And very masterfully, through the Holy Spirit, of course, Paul paints this picture of the church being just like your body or my body. Many different members, so many different parts, fingers, toes, organs, eyes, ears, bones, muscles, but it's all joined together in one unit. And if you take any part of your body and separate it permanently from the rest of the body, it will die, and it may even affect the health of the whole body. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 12. Let's start at verse 12 and read down to verse 18, and then we'll look at verses 25 to 28. He says, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. All its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. We were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Now let's pause. One Spirit. In another place, he goes even further in the book of Ephesians. There's one spirit, one faith, 
one baptism, one body, period. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile or a Jew, an American or a Cuban. doesn't matter if you're a slave or free, rich or poor, man or woman. There's only one body. So I guess the question every one of us would need to ask, am I in the body? Because you're either in that one body or you're somewhere else. Because there isn't a second body. There's one body of Christ. Okay? Many members, many parts, just as our body has many, many different parts, all united to form one body, so it is with Christ, he says. Verse 14. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Interesting little piece of trivia. The human body, every one of us, begins the same as one single cell. It starts dividing 2, 4, 8, 16, 32. By now, I think we're all adults joining in tonight. You have approximately 100 trillion cells in your body. 100 trillion separate and distinct cells all united together to make you, to make one body. What an amazing feat. 100 trillion parts all united into one functioning body. Verse 15. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand... I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? Verse 18 very key verse. It's all in bold in your notes for a reason. But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. So, this really isn't a matter of you or me joining the body of Christ Either God has placed us there, or we've removed ourselves. If we claim to be Christians, then surely we have received God's Spirit. We've all experienced the same water baptism. And with that same faith, that same salvation, that same water baptism, and that same Holy Spirit, God then places, another translation for that word is arranged, God arranges or positions the parts in the body just as he wanted them to be. So if he wants you to be an eye and you want to be an ear, you're going to have a real problem. Because he's already made up his mind, you're supposed to be an eye. If 
he wants you to be a foot and you want to be a hand, you're going to find yourself fighting with God and a lot of other people too because you're out of place. He has a place for you and for me in the body. And here again, this is why we want to surrender to God. Surrender to His will. What is my place in the body of Christ, Lord? What is it that you've called me to do? Where have you called me to be? And this idea of, I'm going to pick and choose what church I want to go to, even that's not biblical. We should be in the church where God placed us. And I believe that means the local church, the local congregation, where you meet, where you serve, where you grow together with other believers. You didn't choose that. God chose it for you. And if you can understand that God placed you there, then you need to stay there as long as God wants you to be there. If God wants to move you, he can move you. But understand, God is the one making these decisions. God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Verse 25, so that there should be no division. Remember, the parasite spirit wants to bring division. It wants to bring separation and wants to break apart the unity of the body of Christ. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now let me pause here because I want to make an important point. Back in verse 25, he says that its parts should have equal concern for each other. The amazing thing about the body of Christ is although each part is of equal value. We should have the equal concern for each and every member in that body. They're not all the same. Don't confuse this equality that he's talking about with all of us being exactly the same. Quite the contrary. In the context, it's clear. You have ears, you have eyes, you have noses, you have heads, you have feet, you have arms, you have legs, all kinds of different pieces, diverse members, but with equal value. And we should have equal concern for each part of that body. No one is more valuable than anyone else. And again, let me read verse 26. If one part suffers, doesn't matter which part it is, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Verse 27. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church. There's that same word again, we saw in verse 18, 
God places the parts in the body. And now he's going to talk about specific ministries, specific positions in that body, <clears throat> key positions of leadership. These are not decided on by uh, a church board or by a democratic vote. God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. If you study over the entire chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, and I would recommend you go back and do that, you begin to get a clear picture that this is all God's idea, it's all God's plan, and God is the one who arranges and joins all of these different parts together and unifies them into one body. It's not humanly possible to do something like that. God does it. He places the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be, and I would add, where he wants them to be. Now, in Ephesians 4, I mentioned, if you read the opening verses, Paul talks about this unity in the body. You can study those on your own, but he says there's one faith, one baptism, so forth. Then dropping down to verse 11, he's still going to talk more about this unity of the body, one whole body of Christ being the church. Ephesians 4, starting with verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service. Now stop for a minute. Some of those same offices, we'll refer to them as offices, he listed in 1 Corinthians 12 also. God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Here he mentions five, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. What is their function? Verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ, there it is, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all, 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 all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So we learn something more here. As God places the different members into the body of Christ, as people are saved, born again, take baptism, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, God places them into this body. His ultimate goal is that all would reach unity. One body built up until we all reach unity. And Paul is very specific here. Unity in the faith and in the knowledge 
of the Son of God. Unity in the faith would be impossible unless there's a unity in understanding and revelation from God's Word. If everybody has their own ideas about what the Bible means, one person believes that God created all things, the next one thinks that God used evolution, and if some people believe this about Jesus and something else, you're never going to have unity. So the ultimate unifier here must be the truth of God's Word. That's what brings us into a unity in the faith. And we'll see that even as we read a little further down. Verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants. We all start out, start off as infants, babes in Christ, but we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Every wind of teaching. You know, if you pay any attention, and I honestly don't pay a whole lot of attention, but if you pay any attention to Christian TV, Christian radio, Christian books, and Christian resources of different kinds, you sense every so often there's a new move, or there's a new wind of teaching coming along. You need to check these things out very carefully, because just because it's the new thing in the church, just because it's popular now in all of the Christian circles, we need to check these things out against the Word of God. And again, I'm, I'm sorry to have to say this, but because... There are many Christians who are still infants in their knowledge and understanding of the Word of God. They're swept away, tossed around, every time one of these new teachings comes blowing through. And we need to be rooted and grounded in Christ. We need to have a firm foundation in the Word of God so that when one of these things comes blowing through, we can check it out carefully and discern whether or not it is according to God's Word. Isaiah says if they don't speak according to this Word, there's no light in them. In other words, disregard it. If you know it's contrary to something that is clearly taught in the Word of God, then forget it. And we've seen many of these come blowing through the churches in recent years, and it does just what Paul says. It tosses people back and forth, and they're blown here and there. Very often they're blown out of their churches, and they join some other strange movement, and they even end up in heresy and serious false teaching. No longer infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. And I don't want to get into all that tonight, 
We did a long series last year on false prophets from Second Peter chapter 2. You can always find out what's at the basis of it. It's money. They're using cunning and craftiness to deceive people because they want to get their money. Verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, thy word is truth, Jesus said, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, this is important, that's why it's in bold in the outline. From him, Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let me tell you something. The devil knows these verses. The devil understands the power of unity. That's why he is forever trying to drive wedges and bring divisions and separations between Christians, between Christian leaders, and even between churches. This is one of his favorite strategies. Divide and conquer. If he can break us apart, or better still, if he can get one in, one individual to say, you know what, I'm fed up with this pastor, I'm fed up with this church, I'm just going to be a loner now. I'm going to sit at home and watch Benny Hinn on the television every Sunday morning, and I'm not going anywhere, I'll just be a Christian all by myself. The devil laughs and he has a wonderful time. That's just what he wants to do. Divide and conquer. If you've ever watched videos of, uh, I love to watch them, by the way, of the wildlife on the African plains, you know, the, the lions and the cheetahs, and then, you know, the herds of wildebeest and antelope and all that, you'll notice something very frequent in those movies or videos. The poor little antelope or the poor wildebeest that ends up becoming dinner for the lion or for the cheetah, the first thing that happens is somehow he gets separated from the herd. Listen to me very carefully. He gets separated from the herd. Once he's separated from the herd, it's very easy for one of these predators to bring him down, kill him, and have him for lunch. That's why God designed those animals to live together in herds. Their safety, as long as they're in the herd. But once they get separated, they start lagging behind, or maybe they wander off in a different direction, they become easy pickings for the lion. And of course, we all know what Peter says about the devil. He's like a roaring lion, roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. It's a lot easier for him to devour 
a lone Christian who's gotten separated from the pack. They've missed three or four weeks of church. They're no longer coming to prayer meetings. They're no longer involved in Bible study. They're not really actively engaged in fellowship with other Christians. And guaranteed, the lion, the devil, has his eyes on you. Because those are the easiest ones for him to pick off. Listen to what Paul wrote here in the passage we just finished from Ephesians 4, verse 16 again. From him, Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by supporting ligaments. Something is tying the members of this body together, just as the different parts of your body. There are joints, there are real strong ligaments and tendons holding everything together. You can't just yank your thumb off from your hand. You, you can't just pull your arm out from your shoulder. These things are very strongly joined and held together by ligaments. What are the ligaments? I believe it refers to relationships. As we build these relationships within the body of Christ, relationships of love, of trust, of serving one another, of helping one another, we don't realize it, but what we're forming are strong ligaments that hold us and tie us together. All right, let's move on here. Probably not going to be able to finish this, so we're going to have to hold it over next week. But let me introduce the third step here, and we'll talk much more about this next time. This is different from the first two points. First point is surrender to God. Tell God you want Him to rule over your life. You want to learn His ways, His laws. You want to be submissive to God. Secondly, if you're a true Christian, then it's God's desire that you become joined with the body of Christ. And that means getting joined to a local expression of that universal body of Christ. We call them churches or congregations, but joined in a meaningful committed way, not, oh, I'm going to visit, you know, the fourth apostolic Pentecostal church here this Sunday, and next Sunday I'm going to watch T.D. Jakes on TV, and the following Sunday I might listen to John Hagee, and then maybe the fourth Sunday I'll come to New Life Ministries, and I'll just kind of pick and choose like you do when you go down the line at a salad bar. There's no commitment there. Who's watching over your soul? Who are you joined to? And that's what this third point is. Submit to those within the body of Christ whom God has placed in authority over you. Now, I chose those words very carefully. Submit to those whom God has placed over you. Sadly, in a lot of churches, people are just put into positions of authority by man. 
Oh, they have a little vote, and oh, let's make Joe an elder, and let's make Bill the pastor, and uh, you can be the apostle, and we'll make her the prophet. It's all confusion. God never intended for these things to be decided by man. God is the ultimate source of all authority. And so within his body, we saw, he establishes apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These different leadership gifts or offices that God ordains, he places them there, he gives them his authority. And what the New Testament teaches all of us, we need to find out who those people are so we can submit ourselves to them. Let me just introduce this tonight with one passage, and then we're going to have to dig much deeper next time. Hebrews 13, verses 7 and 17. And I'm going to read it from the New King James Version, but also point out how it reads on certain key words in the NIV. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember those who rule over you. Very similar to the original King James, who have the rule over you. NIV says, remember your leaders. Remember those who are your leaders. More literally and correctly, though, based on the Greek, it's remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Now, we learn a few things just in this one verse about these leaders who were put there to rule, and we're going to have to look carefully at what that word rule means, but who were put there to rule over other members of the body. Well, two things we learn immediately. They were the ones who were teaching the word of God. It says, those leaders who have spoken the word of God to you, so they were well-versed in the scriptures, they were teaching others in the church the word of God, but perhaps even more importantly, it was their lifestyle. It says, whose faith follow. Very interesting. It doesn't say whose sermons follow. It says, whose faith follow, considering the outcome, not of their preaching, of their conduct. You see, this is where many, many Christians and many churches go astray. They have some flashy, charismatic preacher. He's a good singer, and he prophesies and has these wonderful gifts. The people never stop to examine his conduct. And sadly, long after the destruction, we find out they were living in adultery, maybe even in homosexuality. They were corrupt. They were greedy for money. They had all kinds of sleazy business deals going on. We need to know the faith and the conduct 
of these leaders before we follow them. So three things. They speak the word of God to you. They have a faith life that you should follow. And you should consider their conduct. What is going to be the outcome of their conduct? All right. Now jump down to verse 17. He's still talking about these same leaders. Obey those who rule over you. NIV again translates it, your leaders. Obey your leaders and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Let me finish by just saying a couple of things about this, and we're going to have to talk more about it next time. God is a God of order. We see it in the Old Testament. When he brought the Israelites out of Egypt, one of the first things he did, he counted them, and he put them all in a marching order. He arranged them by tribes, by families, and he established leaders over those tribes and families from the, from the get-go. As soon as they came out of Egypt, God established that order. Because God is a God of order. He wasn't saying one person is more powerful or smarter or more valuable or better than anyone else. He just needs a chain of command. He needs authority and order within his body. The same thing is true in the church. God has established certain leaders within churches and the word rule here scares people. That's why NIV, I think, changed it to leaders. These are not despots. They're not dictators. They're not tyrants. These aren't people that are power-hungry, bossing everybody around, abusing people, taking advantage of people. Sadly, that's how some have taken this, but that's not what it means. These are humble leaders whom God raised up and anointed for that task, and they rule, they lead in the fear of God. And they understand they're in that position only because God put them there. And remember what it says, they also must give an account. That's why the book of James says, don't be in a big hurry to become one of these leaders. They'll be judged more severely, more strictly than the rest. So it's not, oh boy, I want to be pastor so I can boss everybody around. I want to become an elder so I can show everybody who I am. Oh really? <laughs> God will deal with you, trust me. So this concept of leaders rulers, if you will, in the church. Yes, it's easy to say, I submit myself to God and to the Lordship of Christ, but I'm not going to obey any man. A lot of people have that spirit. I'm not joining any church. 
I'm not going to submit myself to any pastor. I don't, I don't listen to man. I listen to God. God is the one who's the Lord of my life. Sounds real spiritual, but it's demonic. I'll say it again. It sounds spiritual, but that kind of talk is demonic because we're going against the very order that God established. God has placed apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in the church with a specific function, and he tells us, obey them. Submit to their authority. Remember their lifestyle. Imitate their faith. Learn from their teachings. Follow their way of life. And when they teach you or counsel you or say something to you, obey them in the fear of God. Be submissive. Why? For they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do it with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. And we'll see in a number of other verses next week that God has indeed established what I like to call servant leaders. These are not dictator leaders. These are servant leaders, humble servant leaders who have been placed there by God for the building up and the growth of the body of Christ, the church. We need to recognize those ministries and those people whom God places in those positions because they're there for a reason. And to our own detriment, to our own harm, if we say, oh, I'm not listening to anybody, I'm not taking orders from anybody, I'm going to make my own choices, I'm my own man or I'm my own woman, I'm not joining any church, I'm not submitting to any pastor, I don't follow any man, I only follow Christ. It's demonic. It's a rebellious spirit. And we need to point out what it is, because it will eventually take that person out of the body of Christ, and they become one of those wandering stars, or one of those little wildebeests or antelope that starts lagging behind from the herd, and along comes the lion or the cheetah, and the next thing you know, they are finished. We need to pray much in these last days for the unity of the body of Christ. And two important ingredients we've touched on here. First, submit to the Lordship of Christ. Understand that the church is His. He has a place, a function, an office, if you will, for every one of us. And we need to find out what that is. Lord, am I, am I an eye, an ear, a nose, or a toenail? Whatever my place in the body is, let me function there happily, joyfully, serving those around me, and I want to be joined to your body. And then, 
We're going to pick it up from here next time. We must learn how to submit to those whom God places over our lives for good, to teach us, to guide us, to counsel us, and yes, maybe even to warn us, but they're there for our good. Submit to them, obey them, follow them. We just read. Let's finish there, and we'll pick it up right here next time as we continue looking at how to defeat this parasite spirit. In closing, let me tell you, over the 40-plus years of ministry, I've seen some very talented, gifted men and women come along. They had beautiful anointings, they knew the Bible, they could sing, they could preach, they could prophesy, they could quote the scriptures, they knew far more than I will ever know. And yet, a common thread that seems to run through a number of them, they could never submit. They could never settle down and become joined to the body of Christ. And sadly, in a number of those cases, when they were finally confronted face-to-face, they openly admitted, we refuse to submit ourselves to anyone. We will not join any church. We will not place ourselves under any man. And... In some cases, maybe it was because of some bad experiences, bitterness or hurts in the past. But you know, uh, that's no excuse. We need to get healed from those things and still understand God has good, godly leaders that he's placed in his body for our growth and for our spiritual well-being. We need to place ourselves under those leaders, so that we can grow, so that we can be protected and not be separated from the herd, like that antelope or that wildebeest that ends up being attacked by the lion or the predator. Let's pray tonight. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that each time we gather together and look into your word. Your Holy Spirit gives us more light, more illumination, more understanding. We thank you for filling us tonight with the knowledge of your will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so we can walk worthy of your calling upon our lives, O God. We want to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. God We submit ourselves, as best we know how, to the kingdom of God. We want you to be our king. We want you to rule over our entire lives. Our choices, our beliefs, our decisions, our ambitions, our future, our possessions, our money, our time. We want you to reign, to rule over every aspect of our lives. We submit to your kingdom tonight. 
And Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would have a deep sense of peace, of knowing that we have surrendered to you, and you have placed us exactly where you want us to be in your body. That you've given us certain gifts, certain talents, certain abilities, and by no accident or coincidence, we're in the place where we are because you ordained that we be there. And Lord, we don't pick and choose what ministry we want. You have given each and every one of us a ministry. Help us to find out, understand what that ministry is, and flow and grow in that grace and ministry each and every day of our lives until Jesus comes. And Lord, help us to recognize those godly, humble servant leaders that you've placed in our lives. If if there are young people or children on the phone, maybe it's their parents. If we're members of congregations, maybe it's the pastors, elders, other leaders within that church, Sunday school teachers, whatever it may be, help us to acknowledge those God-ordained leaders and authorities whom you've placed over our lives for our good. For they watch over our souls, they pray for us, they give us the word of God, and Lord, they inspire us with their faith and with their godly example. Help us to follow those leaders. Help us to imitate their faith. Help us to submit to their teaching and to their counsel, that we may grow together until we all reach that unity of one complete body, expressing the fullness of Jesus Christ. Lord, bless and keep each one tonight. Watch over each and every one of us now and until Jesus comes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.